0: I'm Avery Schmitz, Internet Lawfare, with an episode from the Lawfare Archive for March 18, 2023. President Biden's approval of the Willow Project, a controversial, large-scale drilling venture in northern Alaska, has reignited scrutiny of federal policy in the Arctic. Willow has been widely criticized by environmental activists, and the circumstances surrounding its approval shed light on the geopolitical complexities of U.S. policy in the High North. For today's Archive episode, I chose an interview from February 24, 2020. In the episode, Lester Munson sat down with Jim Denoy to discuss the extent to which climate change mitigation efforts dictate American strategic policy in the Arctic.
2: Lester Munson, a Senior Fellow at NSI and the former Staff Director of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. And today we'll be doing a deep dive with NSI Visiting Fellow and Defense Intelligence Executive Jim Denoy. Jim is a Career Intelligence Officer with the U.S. Defense Intelligence Agency and has worked in a variety of intelligence fields, including geospatial intelligence, current and crisis intelligence, long-term research, policy support, and foreign intelligence relationships. His tours of duty have included assignments in the Office of the Director of National Intelligence, the Office of the Secretary of Defense, the Joint Chiefs of Staff, U.S. European Command, NATO, the FBI, and the White House. He is also the recent author of an NSI law and policy paper entitled The Arctic, Securing the High Ground. Jim, welcome. It's great to have you here.
3: Thank you very much, Les, and uh, I really uh, thank uh, George Mason University for allowing me to participate in this podcast. Uh, I would say, Les, everything you said was absolutely true. As of two weeks ago, (laughs) I retired uh, with 37-plus years in the intelligence community. My last day on on the job was on 31 January. So this is sort of my coming out uh, in terms of uh, getting out and getting the message out. So uh, thank you very much. I really appreciate
2: it. Well, we're thrilled you're doing it here on Fault Lines. So why don't you give us a little bit more color about your background, some of the stuff you've worked on, and then what inspired you to write this paper on the Arctic?
3: Yeah, you know, sir. Uh, you know, I'm an analyst by trade. I've spent 37 years on the analytic side of the house in the intelligence community. I'm a Europe, Eurasia, NATO person. Uh, that's my focus area. And, uh, you know, you can't look at Europe, Eurasia, and NATO without looking at the Arctic, Because you have a number of countries, obviously Arctic states, and there are eight Arctic states. You've got Canada. You've got Denmark by virtue of its uh, uh, sovereignty over Greenland. You've got Finland. You've got uh, uh, Norway. You've got Sweden. You've got the United States. And you've got Russia. And uh, five of those Arctic states are members of the Atlantic Alliance. So you immediately uh, have to start focusing on the Arctic. Uh, Probably – my interest peaked over a decade ago in uh, 2007 when Putin decided to uh, plant a flag at the bottom of the Arctic Sea in the Lomonosov Ridge. That was in August of 2007. And that was kind of a, an alarm bell there. It was kind of a, a wake-up call for some of us in the intelligence community. And so uh, my job at the time, I was a defense intelligence officer for Europe NATO over the Pentagon, and said hey you know we've got to start looking at this as a long-term strategic issue. Uh, The fact of the matter is that uh, the Arctic polar ice cap is shrinking. It is about from estimates anywhere from four to six percent of the uh, uh, the earth's surface is in the Arctic and two of our most uh, prime global competitors Russia and China are are moving forward. You know nature uh, abhors a vacuum and as that the polar ice cap shrinks. Uh, people are going to move in, and, and the degree of human activity is going to increase. So,
2: all right. So let's talk. Let's talk a little bit more about the before we get into the policy issues. Maybe the the geography here, and I, and this is not a National Geographic uh, podcast or anything. So we're just talking about this in terms of how it impacts the policy. But the Arctic is not like the Antarctic. It's a different kind of place. Uh, talk about just the the physics of. Uh, the, the, the high ground of the Arctic and what, what the ice cap means, what the fact that it's receding means, and then the, the various uh, geographical features in the Arctic that are relevant for national defense issues here.
3: Well, yeah, if you look at if you look at
2: Antarctica, for example,
3: um, the uh, the big difference is Antarctica is its own continent. It, uh, it does not touch upon land masses either from a landmass perspective or a coastal perspective on, on the number of countries that the, that Ant, that Arctic, the Arctic does. And so you immediately have an issue in terms of uh, sovereignty, uh, country rights that really didn't exist in the Antar- in Antarctica. When the Antarctica Treaty was, uh, was uh, devised in the, in the 1950s, it was a lot easier for those countries to kind of declare and internationalize uh, the ant, uh, the Antarctic. That's really not the case. It's a lot more complicated in in the Arctic. In fact, many people argue that the Arctic uh, is not an ungoverned space. It's probably the most governed space uh, on the planet because right now, uh, each of the countries has their own laws, their own policies. The European Union is involved as well through virtue of uh, the European Union's uh, uh, membership with a number of the Arctic uh, states. So. It's, it's a quite quite different uh, situation than we find in Antarctica.
2: So as the as the polar ice cap melts, uh, it opens up new lanes for potential shipping traffic, for navies, for things like that. There's also energy resources at stake in the Arctic. I've seen numbers. Uh, I think there's a geological survey in, uh, in 2008 that said somewhere between 16% and 30% of undiscovered energy resources on the earth are in the arctic so how is is that talk about how that might be playing into some of the developments we're seeing today
3: well it's absolutely right there are their estimate to have large uh, natural resource reserves both uh, oil natural gas there's fishery issues involved too because you've got you've got fishing rights that are involved in in the arctic so absolutely uh, there are economic drivers and potential economic benefits that are uh, really at, at stake here. And uh, you would certainly see that in the case of Russia and China, who, who really see the economic benefits involved in opening up those markets.
2: So two of the, uh, the big geographical features in the Arctic are, in my understanding, please correct me if I'm wrong, are the Northwest Passage, which is mostly between uh, the north coast of Canada and the North Pole, and also the Northern Sea Route, which is above the the Russian territory between Russia and and the North Pole. So what, are the, what can you talk a little bit about these two geographical features of the Arctic and what they mean for uh, for navies and for countries that are trying to exploit the Arctic?
3: Yeah, I think everybody recognizes that those are going to be the two main thoroughfares uh, in the Arctic as uh, these areas uh, open up. As the ice cap recedes, the these will become the, the transport ar- arteries for commercial traffic. Uh, they will also open themselves up to uh, potential uh, military activity as well. Uh, the Russians recognize that. They've always recognized that. In fact, in their, their Russian Arctic strategy, which came out in 2008, they specifically lay out the fact that uh, the northern sea route is the, their main thoroughfare and that they will do everything to ensure that they have access and control over the northern sea route. Uh, in terms of the Northwest Passage, Canada has, uh, has declared for quite some time that they see this as an internal waterway. It is, is part of Canada. We, we do not recognize it. We the United States uh, do not recognize that as an internal waterway with Canada. We see it as an internal, uh, excuse me, international uh, waterway. But these are the two main thoroughfares that are that are at a play when we're talking about opening up the Arctic to commercial uh, business and other activity.
2: Let's talk about Canada a little bit more. When I was when I was reading your paper, I was the thing that struck me the most was the differences between the U.S. and Canada on Arctic issues. And of course, our interest, aside from the fact that we're kind of interested in things globally, is that Alaska is. Uh, of course part of the united states is in the arctic circle and so we so the us has a vested interest a a geographic interest in the arctic circle not quite as big as canada's of course but canada's our closest neighbor we collaborate with canada on any number of issues we for the most part share the same language uh, as as you were pointing out earlier in our conversation norad is both a us and a canadian entity it's a joint operation uh, Canada is one of the five eyes. It's as, as close of an ally as there is, even a, even probably closer than our special relationship with the United Kingdom is we're close to Canada. And yet we have a real difference in the Arctic. Can you talk a little bit more about the way Canada sees the Arctic and uh, the Northwest Passage and how that impacts U.S. and Canada relationship as vis-a-vis the Arctic?
3: Yes, uh, Canada is uh, probably... In my view, the key to future cooperation in the Arctic, uh, for a lot of for a lot of the reasons that you laid out, Les, yeah. and we do have differences. We do have differences in terms of the uh, the status of the Northwest Passage. We do have currently kind of a modus vivendi with the Canadians on that that dates back to the Reagan administration, in which we will sort of ask the Canadians, uh, notify them if, we're, if we wish to have a ship pass through the Northwest Passage and they will escort us through. That was kind of kicking the can down the road uh, for, for many, many years. As long as the Northwest Passage was essentially inaccessible, it really didn't become an issue. But as the, as the ice melt, as the cap recedes, this is going to become more and more of an issue. And the issue and the status of the Northwest Passage and the disagreement between the United States and Canada on that issue is going to become more and more pronounced. Now, the uh, the Canadians recently issued a new Arctic strategy uh, late last year in which they were uh, very clear in which they reaffirmed the fact that they view the Northwest Passage as Canadian, as an internal uh, waterway.
2: So uh, I did a little bit of research. You know, The last time we invaded Canada was during the Madison administration. That was a long time ago. Things have gotten a lot better since then. But uh, the current administration, President Trump, has had uh, occasionally a testy relationship with Canada. We've imposed tariffs on some of their products. I don't think they were expecting at all, and there's been a little bit of hostility in the conversation. Nevertheless, we remain very close to them. Uh, in terms of defense policy, foreign policy, and some other things. Have you seen, and I'm not asking you to get into politics necessarily at all, unless you want to, but have you seen anything in the current administration that makes you think that we're not going to be able to resolve these questions between the U.S. and Canada on policy issues in the Arctic?
3: I think there's a lot of work to be done. Uh, you know, I, I think we can resolve them. Uh, Canada is a good friend of ours. and But we have to have, begin that discussion because I think any comprehensive U.S. Arctic strategy is going to have to uh, involve cooperation with the Canadians. Uh, Already we do have good cooperation with them. The United States Coast Guard and and the Canadians cooperate. Uh, The Canadian Navy and the U.S. Navy uh, have a history of cooperation. So the foundation is there. I think we can work it out. I think there's mutual benefits for us to move forward uh, in, in greater cooperation with the Canadians on the Arctic on a whole number of fronts, whether it's environmental issues, Defense and security issues, economic issues, and so I'm optimistic. I believe that we can come to an agreement on that, and I really think, and as I lay out in my paper, I think we're really going to need to uh, talk to the Canadians seriously about the entire issue of the status of the Northwest Passage. I think we could actually get some con- ring out some uh, really good concessions on the- with the Canadians on that issue if if we. Be as so bold as to maybe even recognize the Canadian sovereignty over the Northwest Passage. I know that's going to be extremely controversial, but I think uh, if we play our hand right, we could probably uh, get some guarantees in terms of uh, access rights and et cetera, and, and other other benefits that would be uh, very, very, very uh, fruitful for both us and the Canadians.
2: So there's there's a you see a way forward there. That's that's encouraging because it does seem like the. The, that's the potentially the biggest roadblock to the U.S. implementing uh, a, perhaps a more robust Arctic strategy going forward.
3: Yeah, it's it's the it's the elephant in the room, and uh, you may have heard, you know, Secretary Pompeo at the late uh, one of the last Arctic uh, Council meetings did mention the whole issue of uh, both the Russians. Claiming sovereignty over the uh, Northern Sea Route and the Canadians over the Northwest
2: Passage as issues that we, the United States, don't recognize. All right. So you talked about the elephant in the room. Let's talk about the bear in the room. Uh, Russia has more than 50% of the land claims in the Arctic Circle. Uh, Your paper notes with some alarm that Russia is taking a lot of steps to militarize the Arctic. And, and putting a lot more assets up there. Can you talk about that? And what is it that Russia is doing specifically in the Arctic that is of concern to us right now?
3: Well, I think, you know, we've seen this uh, really beginning in the second administration of Putin's presidency in 2007, as I mentioned before, when they, they put their flag in the uh, Arctic seabed in the Lomonosov Ridge in 2007, and then they issued their comprehensive Russia Arctic strategy document in 2008. You know, the Russians have have not been coy or uh, secretive about what their plans are for the Arctic. If you read their 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 strategy document, if you look at their actions, it's quite clear that they want to ensure that they assert uh, control over the vital Northern Sea Route. That's probably the primary driver behind that. And it it explains their behavior, I think, uh, very clearly. They have um, refurbished a lot of the old Cold War military bases that were there. They're putting more uh, air defense assets in the region. All of these are designed so that they could assert control what we would call in, on the defense side area access and area denial capability A2AD capability that would allow them to control that transit route that is the absolute uh, vital interest that they have right now i think most most people who are looking at it can put this and say well these are somewhat defensive actions in Na- uh, on the part of the russians but we are concerned and we need to we need to establish i think clear red lines in the Arctic and ensure that whatever the Russians do in that area do not cross the line in terms of trying to assert control over areas where they are vital to the United States and our NATO allies. So we need to monitor very, very, very carefully.
2: So one of the things we'll get into, I think, towards the end is, are your policy recommendations for the U.S. One of, one of the most notable uh, facts in your in your report is that the U.S. only has two icebreaker ships. So we'll, we'll get to that in a second, but the Russians have significantly more icebreaker ships, which are a requirement to do a lot of the things that they're trying to do in the Arctic. How many do they have? What are they doing with them? What's What are the trend lines for their naval presence in the Arctic? They have close,
3: they have about 46 or so. These are U.S. Coast Guard uh, figures themselves. Now they vary as much because you really have to take in consideration uh, particular icebreakers, are they fully operational at any any period in time? But they have uh, about 46 uh, icebreakers of all various types, six of which are nuclear powered. And the Russians are the only country on the planet that has nuclear powered icebreakers. And as you noted, Les, yeah, the United States has two operational icebreakers, one heavy icebreaker and one uh, medium uh, uh, icebreaker.
2: So that's a real challenge for us. All right, let's talk about... uh China and I and at a certain point here I want to get I want to get to the NATO question but before we get there let's talk about China China is not an Arctic country it's not in the Arctic Council it's not one of the eight countries that are that are part of that uh, international organizational mechanism but it's it's got ambitions uh, China's been uh, undermining US interests in the Arctic almost directly for a little while now talk about what China's doing in the Arctic and where it wants to go.
3: Well, you're right. They're, they're not a formal member of the Arctic Council, which was formed in the 1990s. Uh, they, are, they do have observer status as of uh, 2013, and they're pushing very hard to uh, move forward from observer status, and they'd like to have full voting status in, in the, the Arctic Council. Beijing saw, I think, a big opening uh, in the early 2000s uh, with the financial crisis in Iceland. Iceland went essentially bankrupt. Nobody was going to loan them any money. Uh, the Chinese came in with some financial incentives, and uh, they, they've used their relationship with Iceland as kind of a wedge to establish, a again, a foothold uh, in the Arctic region. They also have been very aggressive in using scientific expeditions uh, up in the Arctic to uh, what we would call uh, – gain domain awareness as to how to operate
2: in the Arctic. So they're not just doing science at those science research facilities. That's pretty sure. You know,
3: yeah. Well, scientific expeditions serve multiple purposes and they do have military applications as well because you get to, to learn how they can operate, what, what the difficulties are to operate in the Arctic. And that information is very useful uh, on many different fronts, including on the defense and security front.
0: and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20, code LAWFARE20.
2: Okay, so uh, we've talked about uh, Russia, China, Canada, big uh, countries with big interests in the United States and and their roles in the Arctic. Let's talk about NATO. Uh, Of course, uh, Canada and the United States are in NATO. Some of the other countries in the Arctic Council are in NATO. Russia and China are not. What are what are the geopolitics here between NATO and Russia, and then between NATO, Russia, and China? How do we how do we kind of pull that apart and see where the the fault lines, as it were, between these these different entities?
3: Well, I think in terms of NATO, I think we can all agree that NATO's kind of been slow in reacting to what the situation is uh, in the Arctic. There are a number of reasons for that, not the least of which the internal dynamic in NATO itself. Historically, uh, the Canadians have been quite wary of having NATO involved in Arctic issues. Uh, this is because the the High North uh, and the Canadian North for them is is a very sensitive issue. They'd rather deal with that uh, internally. They're not, they're not very anxious to have have it uh, and become a NATO issue. Uh, this has been contrasted to let's say countries like Norway, which has been agitating for quite some time to. To define a clear role for NATO in what they call the High North. So, uh, internal NATO dynamics have been at work, which have really prevented the alliance to kind of take a serious and comprehensive look at the Arctic and defining NATO's role. That's changing. Uh, that's changing because China is is uh, becoming much more active on the European continent, much more active in the Arctic, and this has alarmed a number of our NATO allies. And so. We're really at a point where where NATO as an alliance is talking more and more about, you know, what the role it needs to have and define. I think that culminated uh, in 2018 where NATO had a very large military exercise called, called tri, excuse me, Trident Juncture in which uh, this was the largest exercise that NATO has ever had in the Arctic. So they're slowly, slowly moving toward uh, – addressing the Arctic as a security issue. Having said that, there is no NATO-Arctic strategy. Uh, The Arctic is not mentioned in the strategic concept document of NATO, which uh, is wholly outdated and needs to be revised. Uh, I believe now there is discussions about carving out a a NATO-Arctic strategy, which I think is good. That's one of my recommendations. I think they need to do that. NATO is going to have to increase its uh, military exercise uh, pace in the Arctic so that they can learn how to operate effectively in that harsh environment. And so in the meantime, how does Russia Russia react to that? Uh, we, We need to balance. Nobody wants an increase in military tensions in the Arctic region. However, the alliance really needs to define the fact that It has interests in the region and that we need to ensure that Russia's military activity does not cross the line, so to speak.
2: All right. So this isn't a loaded question at all. Mm -hmm. But is it possible that there could be, you know, once NATO kind of gets its house in order in the U.S. and Canada, come to more of a see eye to eye on some of these issues or find an accommodation and a way forward on the Northwest passage and sovereignty issues and, and you get something that looks more like a comprehensive NATO strategy, is NATO going to be collaborating with Russia to keep China out of the Arctic or is it or is it that NATO is going to be uh, maybe working with China to mitigate against Russian influence in the Arctic? Where, where is this thing going? Right, it might be a little bit of a loaded question.
3: No, it's a very good question. I, I think it's – and it's one of the key questions that we're going to have to deal with. I believe, personally, we we need to make a key distinction between Russia and China. Russia is an Arctic nation, and as you mentioned, uh, 50% of the Arctic coastline is, is above Russia. China is not an Arctic state, even though in their Arctic strategy that they published in uh, 2018, they call themselves a, a near-Arctic state, which is an interesting uh, distinction. Uh, my personal feeling is that it's... Uh, it's a distinction, uh, a meaningless distinction. You're either an Arctic state or you're not an Arctic state. In fact, people have pointed out that the closest point of China, to the Arctic, is about 900 to 1,000 miles.
2: Well, we are all on the same planet, right? So we're all yeah. kind of near the Arctic. So it's
3: a good narrative. It's a good it, – it, it's a It's a clever sort of strategic communications effort on the part of the Chinese. But they're not an Arctic state. And so uh, we need to address the Russia challenge and the China Challenge in two different different ways. We are going to have to find ways to sort of find and build confidence-building measures with the Russians as it deals with, with the Arctic. China, maybe not so much. Uh, you know, I think we've seen what the Chinese have done in other areas where they've moved in, in Africa and other regions, in terms of their uh, Belt and Road Initiative. And it's been one of economic exploitation and and environmental damage. So uh, it does not serve the U.S. interest to have, in my view, uh, a larger Chinese uh, presence in the
2: Arctic. So uh, I noted this in one of our earlier Fault Lines episodes, I think. Uh, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, in a speech two or three weeks ago, Basically said that the U.S. is looking for places where it can collaborate with Russia on foreign policy and national security issues. Is this one of those?
3: I believe it is. Uh, you know, I'm not Pollyannish about it. I've spent my entire career looking at the Russians and what they've done uh, around the world. Uh, they are a uh, they are a challenge, and they have violated international law uh, in their invasion of uh, Ukraine and, mm-hmm. and seizure of Crimea. So I'm not Pollyannish uh, one bit in terms of what Moscow has done and what it's capable of doing. But I believe in the Arctic there are areas uh, regarding search and rescue. I think there's areas of cooperation in terms of preserving the environment in the Arctic that we can come through the Arctic Council uh, and even through the NATO-Russia Council when we're dealing with security issues uh, with Moscow. So I I believe Part of our overall strategy needs to be, hey, how can we reach out and devise and enhance and, and follow through on confidence-building measures with Russia in the Arctic? We don't want the Russians and the Chinese to get closer together on, on the Arctic. So we need to sort of keep the Russians uh, close to our best. Contrary, the Russians need investment. Their strategy is totally dependent on foreign investment. And the Chinese uh, have money, have money to spend and they have ambitions to spend. Uh, So this is something we're going to have to look at very, very closely.
2: All right. Let's talk about Greenland. Greenland's Mm -hmm. uh, been in the news a few months ago when President Trump famously, I think on Twitter, tried to buy Greenland from Denmark. Uh, It didn't work. And a lot of people uh, kind of laughed about it and thought it was kind of silly. I think we had to cancel a state visit uh, because of that little controversy. But, you know, notably some smart folks, and I would include Senator Tom Cotton in that, who the senator from Arkansas, who is who is no dummy, said, you know what? There's, there's some real issues here and the, the U.S. has an important role in Greenland and we need to see about expanding it. And, in fact, that's going on. There's increasing U.S., cooperation with Denmark in Greenland on the military side and in some other areas. What's the uh, – how does Greenland play into the conversation we've been having about the role of China in the Arctic?
3: Well, Greenland is in, in China's sights. There's no doubt about it. Uh, Greenland is, is uh, very important regarding China's overall strategy to, again, establish a, a solid foothold and presence in the Arctic. Why is that? Why is that so? Well, you know, Greenland has uh, a degree of, of, of self-rule that Denmark lent them. China is looking to the future of potential independence of Greenland, and they see an opening there uh, economically to, uh, to sort of get Greenland to be closer to, to China in that regard. Uh, in fact, uh, uh, a while back, the Chinese had made a, a very uh, ambitious proposal to build a couple of airports and improve the infrastructure up in Greenland. Uh, we got so alarmed, as well as the Danes, that we were able to to counter that offer and uh, ensure that the Chinese did not get those contracts. I thought that was a good move. So I think, you know, the president was was right in the sense of uh, looking at Greenland as a, as a potential uh, battleground, so to speak, between us and the Chinese. We have, we have an air base, a Thule Air Base in Greenland. It, Greenland has always served an important security role during the Cold War. And, uh, and now in, in the new era of increased human activity in the Arctic, which will, which will proceed in the, in the years and decades ahead, I think Greenland is going to be uh, very important to our overall strategy.
2: So this gets this next question gets a little bit beyond the scope of your paper, uh, but we've we've mentioned two places now where there are economic challenges that were exploited by China: Iceland and Greenland. Uh, and Iceland, very different situations. Iceland had had a banking crisis. Greenland simply undeveloped, and Denmark doesn't seem to be investing the kind of resources in Greenland that you would need to invest to really promote development in a in a more modern way. China's exploiting those opportunities, and it has a direct impact on our national security interests in the Arctic. Should a uh, economic development strategy be included in an Arctic strategy? Granted, it may not be in a whole bunch of countries in uh, Sub-Saharan Africa or Latin America, kind of the usual suspects you think of for economic development, but should we have an economic development component in our Arctic strategy for it to do a whole-of-government approach.
3: Yeah, I think you need a multifaceted approach in, in this. You know, the, the issues that, that we're dealing with in the Arctic span all the elements of national power, uh, diplomatic, informational, military, and economic. And so you need to have a comprehensive strategy that addresses each one of those those elements of national power. Certainly, the Russians and the Chinese, if they were to use our dime concept that we have—diplomatic, informational, military, and economic—they're looking at the Arctic through each one of those prisms. And so, for us to have a comprehensive uh, strategy to address both the Chinese and Russian actions, we, we need to we need to have them across the board.
2: All right, let's get into the details of U.S. Arctic policy and and who implements it a little bit more. The Coast Guard is the lead agency for dealing with the Arctic. It's been that way for uh, my understanding is 150 years. Coast Guard is, of course, an armed service of the U.S. government, it's part of the Homeland Security Department. So it's it's a little bit limited in what it can do, but it's, it's been work running point for us in the Arctic for a long time the department of defense is starting to become more interested how do you how do you see the us kind of bureaucratic politics responding to the challenges in the arctic are we doing everything we possibly can or is there some place where we need to maybe quicken our pace yeah. a little bit
3: well we're playing catch up there's no doubt about it uh, i think but we do have the foundational work is there really beginning in the last days if not hours of of the bush administration in 2009 when president bush uh, issued a uh, presidential uh, executive directive on on the Arctic, which really declared that the United States is an Arctic nation. Many people maybe don't realize that or don't think about it uh, from day to day, but we are an Arctic nation by virtue of Alaska. So that sort of put, put that uh, out there. Uh, that was followed up by the Obama administration issuing a, a comprehensive Arctic strategy uh, in 2013 and 2014 uh, we, what we see is efforts to kind of bring together uh, at, at the uh, interagency uh, level uh, a way to address uh, the Arctic challenge. But these efforts are, have been sort of disparate and uneven across the board over the past 10-plus uh, plus years. What we do have now is a, a number of organizations are now issuing their own Arctic Strategies, as you mentioned, the U.S. Coast Guard has their own Arctic strategy. The Navy has their uh, their strategy as well. But I think what we need to do is come up with a sort of chapeau to bring all of these kind of disparate strategies together. And uh, because we're going to need to have a, as you mentioned, a whole of government, and I would argue a whole of society approach to the issue. I think first we have to do one of the things we have to do is raise the american people's consciousness that this is an important issue we have a lot of issues that that can kind of distract us on this but we need to play the long game on this we're not talking about we're not going to turn the ship around tomorrow or even next next year this is a multi year multi-decade approach that we're going to have to take that's certainly how our adversaries our competitors view this both the russians and chinese Look at this. They're playing the long, long game in the Arctic, and we need to play the long game in the Arctic as well. Human activity is going to increase. The level of human activity is going to increase in the Arctic. And with that come a whole host of challenges across the board economic challenges, political challenges, military and security challenges. And we need to be prepared with, for that.
2: What are, okay, terrific. What, what are, um, some of the specific steps that can be taken now to start to fill that gap. We talked about icebreakers. The U.S. has two. The Russians have as many as 46. I believe even the Chinese, according to your paper, have six icebreakers. They're not even an Arctic nation. Uh, so it seems clear that we should be building more icebreakers so that we can we can have better access to these resources. What other well, steps should we be taking?
3: Well, we definitely have what I call an icebreaker gap. I mean, you remember in the Cold War, we had a bomber gap.
2: The missile gap. We had a
3: missile gap. Well, Both turned out to be erroneous. Uh, but I think uh, – all of us agree that we do have an icebreaker gap that we need to address. There's no way that we can have a credible and persistent presence in the Arctic without building a viable uh, icebreaker fleet. Now, you know the Coast Guard in, in cooperation with the Navy, has come up with their uh, polar security cutter program which uh, foresees the construction of at least three heavy icebreakers over the uh, over the next number of years the first first one is supposed to be uh, the construction of the first one is supposed to be in 2021 with uh, with its commissioning in 2024 and uh, but this this is just a, a drop in the bucket so yeah. to speak in terms of what we need it's a step in the right direction but we really do need to have a more aggressive program uh, to do that. The Navy, uh, for its part, uh, reactivated their, the second fleet, uh, and uh, it became uh, at least initial operation capability last year. It has responsibility for the North Atlantic and, and the Barents Sea and what we call the, the uh, Greenland-Iceland-UK gap, which was well-known during the Cold War days in which uh, – Soviet submarines operated in, but uh, the navy's Arctic strategy, if you see it, is is uh, quite frankly, it was met with uh, shrugs. It's it's some people criticize it as as a rather anemic kind of a pr- approach to the Arctic, but it's it's a step in the right direction. But they really need to do more about uh, about it and define. More clearly, what the Navy Navy's role is going to be in the Arctic in cooperation with the Coast Guard and our allies, as I mentioned before, and this is why Canada and NATO uh, need to play a Uh, a key role in our strategy.
2: Well, we let, uh, you know, we let Canada win the NBA championship last year, the Toronto Raptors. uh, So I think they (laughs) owe us one. That might be the beginning of a good uh, conversation between the two countries. All right. Is there anything, Jim, is there anything else that you think we should be talking about vis-a-vis the Arctic uh, before we close this out today?
3: Well, I, let me go back to a couple of things. First, uh, we need a whole society approach. I believe we need to raise the American public's consciousness as to what the importance of the Arctic is. You know, in, in military strategy, uh, seizing the high ground and maintaining the high ground is, is key to victory. Uh, this is something that Sun Tzu recognized back in the sixth century in the, in the art of war. And uh, there's no higher ground on planet Earth than that of the Arctic. So we need to recognize and appreciate the fact that we are an Arctic nation. Canada is going to play an important role and I think we need to resolve our differences such as they are with the Canadians on the Arctic and move forward in a comprehensive joint approach to uh, dealing with the multitude of challenges that will result in increased human activity in the Arctic. We need to be, as we've always been, the the leader of the Atlantic Alliance and we need to uh, bring forward to NATO and push forward with NATO to develop its own comprehensive Arctic strategy, which recognizes both the opportunities and the challenges that come with increased human activity in the Arctic. We need to devise uh, a way to recognize that Russia has a legitimate role in the Arctic as, as the largest Arctic nation, and while at the same time ensuring that Russia doesn't overstep its bounds and encroach upon the legitimate security uh, needs and uh, requirements of the United States and our allies.
2: It's almost like a microcosm for all Absolutely. of our foreign policy issues
3: and I and I really I really think we, we really need to take on the, the China challenge and this is this is an area where I believe we can find common ground with both our Canadian friends our European friends and and the Russians in that regard. Uh, the Chinese have their own interests. The Chinese are looking at they want to be a global player. They see it as part of their overall economic strategy but as we've seen before that poses a lot of challenges to the United States and they're not necessarily in the US national interest.
2: Are the geopolitics of the Arctic a topic that is only going to get hotter Jim, thank you very much for joining us. I thought this was a great topic. I really appreciate your spending some time and discussing these things a little more in-depth with us. As always, Fault Lines is produced by the National Security Institute. Find out more about the institute at nationalsecurity.gmu.edu. If you have any topics you'd like us to cover in the future, send us an email at nsi gmu.edu. Uh, if you like what we are doing, Uh, here, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe so that more people can find our show. We'd like to thank Claude Jennings for engineering our episode today and Grant Haver for providing production and research assistance. We'll see you next time on Fault Lines.